Hi, and welcome to another episode of Digital Noir Presents. I'm your host, Sam Davies. Today on the podcast, we have a, a really exciting guest, Aaron Walter. Aaron uh, is well known in the design community. Um, I've actually read a few of his books. His book, Designing for Emotion, is a classic. I think it came out in 2011. That's still very pertinent today. He has a long history working in the web. He was the first designer at MailChimp and helped build their UX team and grow that product from a few thousand users into the juggernaut it is today and, and the great product that it is today. Currently, he's the VP of Design Education at Envision, another product that we know and, and really love um, here in the studio at Digital Noir, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners do too. I spoke with him about the state of design in business in 2019, and we really touched base on how important teams are and communication between individuals and how important human connection is really in business and, and design specifically. I hope you enjoy the chat and at the end of it, I'll, I'll let you know some places you can find out more about Aaron. So without further ado, let's jump in with Aaron Walter. Thanks so much for coming on, Aaron. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. Is it uh, nice and sunny over there now or summer coming in? So I live in Athens, Georgia, and it has been crazy sunny and hot here. So I'm, I'm not good at doing the math in my head, but so 96 degrees okay. here. I don't know what that is in Celsius, but I think it's approaching 40. Yeah, high 30s, I think. That is getting hot. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> getting, getting a little warm. I, I could do with a bit of that right now, to be honest, but uh, coming into <laughs> winter. Um, it was quite funny. Researching this chat was like going on a bit of a trip down memory lane for me. So I, um, I run a, a design agency. I started designing for the web in the mid 2000s. So really yeah. sort of came yeah. up, you know, being influenced by Jeffrey Zeldman, Elliot Stock, Andy Clark, these kind of characters. Yeah. Seems like there's been quite a lot of cross pollination with, with your career and, and some of those characters. And I really love the Book Apart series um, when it came out. Yeah, the, those, those guys are all good friends for a long time. And, um, you know, sort of feel like bandmates because, uh, especially like Andy and, and Zeldman, we, we did an event apart all over the United States for a number of years. And, uh, yeah, we went from city to city talking about, um, design and, uh, development and yeah, they're just, they're great folks. So if you want to give our listeners a brief snapshot of your career, you don't need to go too deep into it, but yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, um, in a nutshell, I'm, I'm a guy that found a, a strange path into the design world. I studied painting. Um, I got through grad school and all I wanted to do was make paintings and, and, uh, be an influence in the art world and realized, you know, like it's, it's not 1890 anymore. It was 1990 and, uh, the web was a thing and you could make a bigger splash, uh, more impact on the world through that. And, uh, I'd been learning a lot about Photoshop and coding and found my way in, um, ended up teaching for a while. And, um, one of the, the co-founders, the CEO of MailChimp was a guest lecturer in one of the classes that I, I taught on a regular basis. And, uh, you know, we got to know each other. And, uh, one day I, I said, I want to write a book and I want to put MailChimp in, in the book. And he said, well, why don't you just come in and uh, we can do the interview and then also let's talk about a job. And so I joined MailChimp um, in the early days. Uh, so it was 2008, January of 2008. And they had just a few months earlier made the transition from being an agency to creating a SaaS product. 
Um, and so one engineer and me, we, we were given such great freedom to be able to, um, you know, basically tear down the product and, and build a new thing. So we did that and grew that, that business, um, tremendously. That was fun. And these days I'm at Envision. I lead the design education team and, um, it's tremendously interesting that we get to study companies, see what leads to success, um, where they where they stumble, and then we synthesize those stories and those best practices, and we share those with the world. Exciting! I, I'd love to geek out for a couple of hours with you about the history of web design because I mean, there's so much to talk about there. It's deep. It, it is. It is. And it, I mean, it's all happened really quickly. I mean, you sort of been. Um, at the forefront of it now, you know, for, I don't know, the last 20 years, but uh, 2008 doesn't feel like that long ago, but you think how much yeah. has changed since then. Yeah, lot's changed. Um, so for sure. the, our listeners that don't know, I think a lot of them will, what, what is InVision? And um, yeah, tell us a bit about uh, your role as VP of Design Education and, and what you're doing there. Yeah, so InVision, if you're, you're not familiar with it, it's... Um, you know, designers, we've been designing on an island for a very long time, whether we're in Photoshop or, or Sketch or whatever it is. And it's just us and the screen. Um, but we know that um, great products, things that we make, whether it's in an agency environment, uh, you know, um, a bank, uh, any sort of company that we're in these days that we're making software that, um, uh, you know, software is such a central part of, of our culture and our lives. And so designing in a vacuum on an island, you know, just uh, by yourself is, is not enough anymore. We need to design together, um, be able to get input from other people, share that um, very quickly, prototype that, test that with real customers, learn very quickly, um, start to collaborate with our engineering partners and break down. This is what the design looks like, but how does that translate into specs? How does that translate into a design system? So. Um, Envision is really a suite of products. It's a platform that lets designers um, expand out in um, lots of directions. I actually was an Envision customer for a number of years. Um, I, when I started using it, I was a bit of a skeptic. And uh, uh, Clark, the CEO, the, the, the co-founder of Envision, actually called me up in 2011 when I was leading the design team at, at MailChimp and said, hey, we're making this product. Uh, what do you think about this? And I was like, ah, okay, that's, that's cool, but... Uh, you know, I make my prototypes and uh, test with customers. I, I do it all by code and by hand. And um, it turns out I was totally wrong. He was totally right because <laughs> it, it changed the way that I and my team worked at Mailchimp and allowed us to create a lot more sophisticated products um, a lot faster. Um, so I ended up, you know, leaving Mailchimp, taking a little bit of a break, and and um, chatted with Clark. And uh, uh, and here I am. Three years I've been at Envision leading this design education team. And um, you, you might know Leah Bewley. Um, she's been in the design world for a long time. She's uh, a, a colleague and a, a member of my team. Um, Eli Woolery, who uh, teaches at Stanford um, in the D School, um, the, one of the capstone product teams there, a couple people on my team. And so we visit a lot of companies. We see how they work. Um, companies from you know Capital One, American Express, uh, Goldman Sachs. And uh, we also visit other companies like LinkedIn or Twitter or VMware, um, Fjord, um, lots of different types of companies. And we talk with them, learn about how they solve problems. And um, yeah, we, we, we end up sharing, we kind of think of this as a, a bit of a Robin Hood um, mission that we're on, that we're trying to maybe not 
steal from the design rich, but borrow from the design rich and give to the design poor. So to try to normalize and advance design, um, you know, we want to accelerate the growth of design. We've seen engineering grow tremendously. Um, even product design, product management um, has grown tremendously. And design kind of languishes in the corner, wanting to speak its own language and work its own way. Um, but it has tremendous value for a business as a, you know, to create um, market differentiation. And so we can help with that. We can help teams who are just now getting the design game, the digital game, the software game, um, get their bearings quickly and um, start making better products. It's quite interesting, actually, thinking back to, to the mid 2000s, sort of pre-Twitter and, and the design community. I was actually over in the UK at the time, but the design community it did feel smaller, right? So um, things like a list apart and, and then, like you said, the event apart, it, it did feel like a, a sort of a tighter global community then. But in, yeah. in the preceding decade, um, you have these these huge companies that are really quite design-driven, product-driven companies. And now all of a sudden, design has sort of blown up into a, a bigger, I suppose, consciousness, let's say, in the business community. What do you see as the, the role and, and value of design in modern business? So I think that, you know, if we were to kind of pinpoint the, the catalytic moments or, or events that led to that transition, um, you know, it's a lot about software, as I said earlier, just being pervasive in our lives. It's like you, you, you can't turn up the, the, the temperature in your house without using software. You can't like take a course at a university without using software. You can't drive a car without using software. It's just it's pervasive. Um, and so there, you know, not so long ago, you'd walk into a, a, a big box bookstore and you would see uh, shelves full of like some soft insert software title for dummies. It's like we're all dummies and we're all trying to figure that out. And now those books, uh, I don't know that they're all that popular because at this point we're so software is so ingrained in who we are. And so consumers are super smart. They're super savvy, you know, using their phone. Um, you know, they're always using software. Uh, they know what a good experience is and they know what a bad experience is. So when they sign up for a bank, if their bank has crappy bill pay or like a confusing mortgage application process, they just bail and they go to the one that has a better service. And how do they know what the better one is? They just go hop on another piece of software like Facebook or Twitter and ask like, what's a better experience? How do I do this better? So we're more informed as consumers um, we're informed in our uh, purchase decision process. Um, and so that trickles up to executives at lots of different types of companies that recognize if we don't figure out this customer experience thing, we're dead. You know, like we're we're dinosaurs. We're not going to be able to keep up. And so we see insurance companies like highly regulated, very conservative industries just like clamoring to find their way with design buying agencies, bringing um, teams in-house and trying to figure out how to do that. And they think, you know, I just, I bought design. And so check mark, we're done. But it turns out design is actually, there's, there's complexity to it. How do you fold that into your process? It's not just like uh, we built a thing and then designers come in and make it look nice at the end. Design's a way of thinking. Design is a problem solving uh, approach uh, to the world. Um, and so we're having to invest more into, um, you know, everyone's thinking about 
design thinking as a process and bring that in, not just to the design team, but throughout the whole company, design operations to be able to scale. Um, yeah, design is being invested in, in ways today that it never has been in the past. It's interesting thinking about um, like banking and insurance. I was having a chat with a, a client the other day who had sort of five banking apps on his phone and um, you know, somebody who probably 10 years ago would never have thought about something like user experience, but he was, you know, weighing up the different experiences across these banking apps and using that as a, a catalyst to, you know, what bank should I choose? So that, that yeah. upfront experience is actually driving, uh, you know, a fairly a big life choice as opposed to, you know, interest rates or, or services they're offering. Absolutely. Yeah. And when things go wrong, there's a big bank in the United States called Wells Fargo where yep. that had some pretty nefarious practices that were exposed. That stuff might have like made a front page and then kind of slipped to the past, but now that stuff just takes off like wildfire. So, um, you know, through social media. So people are, are just very aware and, uh, you know, they, they, they go to where they get the best experience. Yep. And it's easy to, it's easy to, you're right. There's that visibility across the different experiences now too. So it's easy to chop and change. Absolutely. So InVision has released a design maturity model, which I suppose is taking a bit of a snapshot across businesses looking at some of these design practices. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so we um, we worked on this really interesting project. Um, we've been trying to crack this nut for a while, try to understand like what leads to a highly, uh, like a high functioning successful design team. And we've looked at lots of different types of companies. We've talked to lots of different experts. And then, um, you know, I was trying to figure this out on my own and I got to the point where uh, I was starting to get some insights, but I wasn't quite figuring it out. And I said, I should talk to Leah Buley because nobody understands a problem like this as well as Leah. Um, so we ended up chatting. She and I had been friends for a long time and she joined the team um, and helped us do a massive study. Um, so because of our company, um, we have relationships with um you know, hundreds of thousands of design teams. We have many millions of, of users on our platform. Um, so we have exposure to a lot of different types of companies. And so we did a study um, that ended up um, touching 2,200 different companies um, around the world, um, across industries. So, you know, it's like a quarter of them were agencies. We see, you know, financial institutions, uh, lots of different types of, of, of organizations, software companies, of course, and many others. So 2,200 companies globally. Um, and we asked a series of very calculated, coordinated questions. Of course, lots of um, early testing to figure out what's the right series of questions. And what's fascinating to us is from that study, a clear model emerged of what are the, the activities or the traits of teams? What do teams do that have the highest impact on business. So how do they impact um, revenue? How do they impact um, customer experience? How do they impact time to market? Um, various, various other dimensions as well. And um, it's pretty clear, it, it just the, the model kind of um, presents itself through factor analysis and, and various ways that we kind of slice and dice this data. So it led us to a five tier model, five levels um, where we see from you know, level one being the least mature to level five being the most mature. Um, and as we might guess, the vast majority of companies exist in the first three levels. 
and still quite sophisticated at you know one through three. Um, we were expecting that level one would be much less mature, but we see level one companies doing some things like creating design systems and um, doing some things that just a couple years ago seemed very sophisticated, and now that's become the baseline. Um, and then from that, we also see nine dimensions, nine dimensions within these five levels of, you know, design operations, design systems, um, employee and executive engagement, and it goes on and on. Uh, if, if people are curious about all those dimensions, they can just visit designbetter.com and they'll, they'll find it. Um, but it's, it is fascinating to see this model emerge and then qualitative studies that have followed and conversations afterwards, um, have kind of borne out and verified a lot of what we've discovered in this broad study. I think one of the things that was interesting to me, I think when you do these types of studies, and um, I was talking to someone that was had done something similar in the sort of uh, culture within uh, teams, is you often think of you know those those big unicorns, the the Airbnbs, the Netflixes of the world, um, with these huge teams. But uh, amongst those level four and five, a lot of the findings were that the teams were actually it's not smaller. these huge teams; they were smaller teams. Yeah, so there, there are a couple things that really surprised us. The um, what we often hear from companies is that, you know, leaders will say stuff like, if only I could get the headcount that I need, we could be doing much better work. Um, but the problem is once you get that headcount, um, as a team grows, there's a coordination tax that you pay, um, that the lines of communication grow exponentially. Um, and you can chart this out. Like if you have three members of the team, you've got three lines of communication, you add one, now you've got two additional lines of communication and so forth. It's, um, so it's exponential in its growth. And so by the time you've got a team of 50, you can have, you know, a hundred plus lines of communication where lots of people have to inform one another. And that is the coordination tax. And so, um, you think you've got more minds and bodies that can push things forward, but, um, all those minds and bodies have to be informed and united by some guiding principle. Um, and that just takes a ton of energy to, to marshal all those forces and move them towards the, the beacon on the hill. Um, so smaller teams of, of high functioning individuals tend to be very effective. Another thing that, that surprised us was ratios is this is another thing that we see a lot of leaders in many different types of companies hyper-focused on that we have, you know, um, one designer for every 77 engineers. Uh, so these ratios of designers to engineers that are wildly disproportionate, which start to shape strategy and product decisions and so forth. Um, those, those ratios aren't good. Um, and the ratios are better than they've ever been now because they're, they're starting to balance out. But, um, we thought based on our extensive qualitative research on something called design genome, um, so if you Google design genome reports, you'll see these detailed studies we did on 15 companies um, in different industries. Uh, but the ratios are not a silver bullet either. They're, um, you know, they're, we see companies that are, you know, very mature and high functioning that um, their team ratios are still poor. So looking across the four levels, then it, it feels as if that interconnectivity and, and, you know, having that, I suppose, less um, blocks in the road between teams and between uh, different levels of management and different uh, you know parts of the business is really important to, to having that sort of smooth flow. That's right. Yeah. So agency to be able to, or autonomy to be able to work independently and make decisions. 
Um, connectivity is, is a really key thing that design is not just happening inside of the design team, but it permeates the business. Um, that uh, part of that is designers adopting the language of business instead of thinking in terms of like fonts and uh, design systems and so forth, thinking in, um, you know, um, uh, churn or revenue, ROI, all these sorts of things that are really critical that all of our partners in engineering, product, sales, marketing, executive branch, um, all, all of them speak this language, but yet design is, is kind of late to the game here. So um, that builds that connectivity. And once you have that connectivity, you start to develop superpowers. So you build connections with engineers and you can start to experiment in ways that you couldn't before um, with small groups of customers. Um, deploying, like maybe you've got a server system that lets you deploy to like 1% of your audience. Um, connections with the data team. So you can, again, do a lot more experimentation and exploration um, all the way up to this top tier, which is these visionaries that are connected to executives and, um, and, and they're involved in strategy. And I think taking this back to some of our listeners, so um, let's say, for example, you're in a marketing department in a, um, an online retailer, let's say, um, a national retailer. I think there's often this disconnect from, from you know, upper tier management to the, to the marketing team and then whether or not there's an internal dev team or if that's agency side, but they're not thinking about things like churn or conversion rates at a, at a management level where well, they should be. They're still sort of thinking about the product and I don't know, logistics and freight, these, these types of things, but really they're living in a digital world, which is making up a huge, a huge part of their bottom line to, for them to be able to speak that language and for the design team um, and the dev team to get together and all sort of have that conversation is really important. Yeah. And when, when teams do that, we see them, you know how, how designers often say, like, how do I get people to value what I do? How do I get people to just, like, understand what we do? Um, you do that by not just waiting for them to change, but for you to actively change yourself. You know, meet them halfway. Speak their language. Um, involve them in the design process. Bring them in in a way that's welcoming. Bring them into design reviews. Bring them into sprints design thinking workshops, that level two where, where designers start to get off the island. So level one, you're hyper-focused on the screen. And, and the maximum impact you have in the company is you've improved usability. Level two is where um, we call them the workshoppers, that these people start to bring other people in and say, you know, this is the design thinking process. It's not just about design, it turns out. You know, engineers can can be involved in this and customer support and marketing and sales, like all these people can be involved. So bringing um, others in and letting design permeate out, you know, to use that metaphor before that design needs to get off the island and into the rest of the organization. In your experience, in your career and, and, and through this uh through this report, how do you think that so frameworks, so things like agile and design thinking um, and design sprints, they, they permeated business outside of the, you know, just the, the development uh, team or the design team. Do you think that's had an impact on this? I think it's had an impact um, quite a bit. I, I think that, you know, a thing, things like a sprint um, that are small, they're time boxed, um, they're cross-functional, they bring other people in. There's a well-documented framework that anybody, even if you like, you're new to design, 
you could probably in a weekend figure it out and go in on Monday and run a simple sprint with some colleagues. You, you could do that. It's not hard to do. Um, and we've seen companies like the Home Depot over here in the United States um, started not doing any design sprints and now they're doing like 25 a year. Um, so they started from zero and changed in, in basically a year's time. Um, and what happened was once they started to do design sprints, they started to notice that their partners in engineering would do take little pieces of the design sprint process and build it into their day-to-day, -day, like crazy eights, for example. Like, let's explore divergently um, the problem space in, in the next, you know, five minutes together. Um, and they would do that. And that language just starts to be part of the culture. Um, and then ultimately, like their CMO saw the results of their sprints and said, wait, how long did it take y'all to, to do this? This happened in a week's time. Why aren't we doing this all the time? And now that, that really changed their culture um, in a big way, in a way that it would not have happened if, if it weren't for sprints. I see companies like Nationwide, this huge insurance company over here in the United States, using design thinking workshops to bring in all these different parts of the organization and help people understand design. Um, so I do think that these are, um, we, we actually talked to John Maeda about this too, and the way that he describes it, I think is so perfect. Uh, he describes design thinking and design sprints are just an offshoot of the design thinking methodology, double diamond methodology. Um, he says it's a, you know, it's a, it's a transformational technology is really what it is. It's like a transformational business technology is the way we could think about design thinking. It's a framework for other people to be involved. It's a framework for connection between teams, a framework for conversation, um, and all this stuff. Like if we were to tear away the many layers, the veneers, uh, of all the research that we did with this maturity model stuff, um, it all resolves down to people. It all just resolves down to how well can we get all of these people to work together towards a common outcome. And that, and that really is the heart of something like design thinking and agile is, is having that common goal and working as a team to get to it, right? I think so. And, and if we were to zoom out even further, I think it's the, it's the common theme of humanity. Sure. Is that how, how we are here today enjoying the fruits of so many humans labor and, you know, our ancestors labor and so forth. Um, it's about getting a lot of people to share ideas and transmit that down to someone else who can then augment and, and expand that further. And having, I suppose, the empathy and the compassion to, um, you know, speak other people's language and have them along for the ride. Cause it, taking it back to that business case that when you, when you're in that sort of tiered hierarchical sense and the designs down here and, you know, management sits up here that there is just that disconnect across it all and, and you don't feel as if you are along for the ride potentially sitting in the design studio or wherever you might be within the organization that's true i think that um you know that's something that's pretty common to pretty much any organization where you get a certain level of hierarchy that one feels a bit disconnected from what's happening um folks that we see that do well even if they're in the lower levels of the organization tend to have curiosity. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've heard a uh, design leader say to me that your best design tool is, is your feet. You know, get up and walk away from your desk and connect with other people. Um, I think that's really key is just like, you know, if you want to grow your career, if you want to produce better work, if you want to have greater impact on the organization, 
um, getting away from your computer, connecting with other people, being curious and asking questions, even if they're dumb questions, mm. um, it's going to take you further in your career uh, by a long shot. I was going to ask you, um, from a business perspective, as let's say an SME with a small design team, what's the number one thing that a business can do to to improve, you know, and move up the levels? But maybe maybe it's not from a business perspective. Maybe it is from that for the um, individual's perspective, both in management and in the design team. Yeah. So, and also from an SME perspective, I think one thing that can happen. I'm thinking just those early stages of Mailchimp, where it was like four or five of us in a room. Um, one thing that we are always really good at, and all credit goes to Ben Chestnut, CEO and co-founder of Mailchimp, um, is customer connection. You know, it was always in the DNA there. And so we would. There was one year where we traveled a hundred thousand miles to meet customers on multiple continents. And you know, we went to Colombia, we went to Europe, we went to Canada, we went all over the United States. We never made it to Australia, unfortunately, for for that purpose. But uh, we we learned a ton, and we always we we did talk to some people in Australia and New Zealand who blew my mind about how they use the product. Um, that is something that is accessible to smaller organizations that can be scrappy and not feel like, hey, I've got to go ask my boss for permission to talk to customers, or we're in a highly re regulated industry where I don't have access to customer data, and therefore I'm not true. I don't really understand the problem space. Um, so uh, that's that's an advantage that should be leveraged heavily in, in any SME. One hundred percent, and and I found that in those organisations that really put the emphasis on the customer and that openness and trust with the customer, it often flows back inwards into the organisation as well. If you've got that trust to go and have a conversation with your customer very transparently, then you can often go and do the same thing with your uh, your boss or whoever it might be. Absolutely, yeah. I love uh, Jared Spool has a a, a good shorthand um, recommendation for us all, which is invest two hours of time for every six weeks um, with your customers. So two hours with a customer every six weeks. And that is very attainable. That's very, you know, it's a small amount. Um, you'll have better outcomes if you do that, not just as a design organization, but across the company. Um, and of course, if you increase that, that amount of customer exposure, you'll do better still. And it's just that feedback loop, isn't it? That, that's, that's so important. Absolutely. Yeah. The feedback loop of just really understanding. Um, so, so we have access to a ton of analytics and data. Um, and so we get the false sense that we really understand why people are doing something, what's going on. Um, so we see behaviors, people move this way. They sign up at this rate. Um, they churn at this rate. We have no sense at all what the motivation is so imagine trying to optimize a business to be successful and it's really fumbling in the dark you think the lights are on you think you understand the problem you think you understand the perspective of your of your customer but you have no idea what motivates that behavior why they churn um so you know talking to real customers hearing that you know i signed up for your product at eight o'clock at night i hadn't eaten dinner my family is waiting for me back home. I have some mission critical deadline at my small business. 
I've got to get this sorted out quickly. And um, I just couldn't do it. I hit this point in your form where the validation was so confusing in the language. I just don't understand. I'm new to this. I don't know how to do this. And I just gave up and I went home and I ended up signing up for a competitor whose ad I saw the following day. So that's a small mistake. One small mistake that loses a customer. What's the lifetime value of that customer? That could be you know, $20,000 for a small business. So talking to real human beings, understanding what motivates their behavior can be a big tipping point to give your, your business the escape velocity it needs to be successful. I think that's a really great tip. And I think a lot of businesses still aren't at the level of going in and, and looking at, at the data, but then the data can only take you so far, right? And if you have that real scientist hat on, then you've got to go out into the field and, and, and dig deeper than, than just the stats. Yeah, and if you feel like you don't have, your, have the scientist hat in your organization, um, you really can't go wrong just talking to people. That's, it's never going to steer you wrong. Nice. Well, um, we'll finish it up here, but I'm, I'm interested to know, I mean, in your experience uh, on the web in particular, because it's of interest to me, what, what do you see coming next? What, what's, what's next in the, uh, the field of web design and user experience? I think that, um, so the reason why I joined Envision is that um, it felt like our tools were starting to change and the way that we work is changing. I see that with like, being a front-end developer today versus being a front-end developer even like three or four years ago, it's changed so tremendously. It's a lot more sophisticated, complicated. It's pretty cool, but it's harder. Um, so I read the biography of uh, a great biography of Walt Disney and um, the impact that he had on shaping animation. Animation in the early days, it's like 25 years into the medium, and it was still pretty rudimentary. It's pretty crude stuff. It was like eight minute slapstick cartoons that were um, characters that looked a lot like Felix the Cat tacked onto the beginning of, of movies. It wasn't real art. It was just like, it's novelty. And a big part of why it was novelty is that the tools were inferior. They it just didn't allow full expression in that medium just yet. So it took a long time to develop a character it was impossible to create a personality in a character because it, the tools were, were inferior. And then Disney Studios started to create something called a pencil sketch where they would just do a walk cycle of a character and they would take it into what they called a sweat box, which is a closet with a Leica camera, and they would photograph that walk cycle and they would have, by the end of the day, the embodiment of a character where they could see that personality and they could really dial that in because the feedback loop was so fast. The, the guys in New York who were producing Felix the Cat, it took them over a month to see what a walk cycle might look like for Felix the Cat. So the tools changed the medium. And the ambition that Walt Disney and his studio had was to win an Oscar, not just to make people laugh, but to make people cry. And they did that with Snow White. And the, the Oscars actually had to create a new category for animation to award them an Oscar. I think that we are at that critical juncture in our discipline right now that our tools are allowing us to express our ideas in new and novel ways. Um, it's why I think Envision is amazing. Um, why like Envision Studio that you can animate and prototype and test things very quickly. Reducing that feedback loop makes us um, focus on different things. Um, it, it brings our thinking up um, 
a few levels higher, more, more abstract, so we can focus on creating better customer experiences. It's exciting times. I think so. I think so. Oh, definitely. Um, if people want to find out more about you or Envision, where can they, where can they look? So Envision, you can find us at envisionapp.com. And um, my team, our, our work that we publish, we've got a lot of free resources for designers out there. Um, designbetter.com is the easiest way to find us there. And then if you're, you want to talk to me, chat with me, I'm Aaron on Twitter with two ways and two R's because my dad misspelled my name at the hospital. <laughs> um, and it's worth checking out your podcast as well. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, the Design Better podcast is, uh, we, we greatly enjoy it. We've got some interesting guests on there like Julie Zhu, David Kelly, who co-founded IDEO and uh, founded the D School. I listened to the yeah. Julie Zhu podcast yesterday. Really fascinating. I got some great guests on there. She's great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Sam. No problem. Have you been down to Australia before? I have. I've been down a few times. Nice. Those fruit bats oh, are yeah. off the charts. <laughs> we don't have them in Adelaide, but yeah, there's a lot, well, not as many as you get on the East Coast, but they're pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> awesome, mate. Thank you so much. Thank you. See ya. Hi, Sam here again. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much to Aaron for taking the time out of his busy day to have a chat with us. Um, like Aaron said, if you want to find out more, you can check out his podcast, which is Design Better. Just search that across your favorite podcast apps. You can find him at, at Aaron, double A-double R, on Twitter, um, and also AaronWalter.com. Again, double A-double R. We'll chuck those in the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast or any of our other podcasts, we would be really grateful if you enjoyed this podcast or any of our other podcasts we'll be really grateful if you could leave a review for us on itunes or google play it does help our visibility searchability and getting out to more people um, if you've got any feedback we'd love to hear from you good or bad feel free to hit us up at digital noir one on twitter or at digital noir presents on facebook just google digital noir and you'll find us thanks so much for listening and we will catch you next time <laughs>